Turn in your Bible to John chapter 8. I'm going to be reading John chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. John 8. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Let's pray. Lord, we do uh, come and we thank you uh, today for the privilege that we do have to gather together as your church, Lord, as a a faith family here in Hickory Flat, Lord. We uh, praise you for the opportunity that we have to come here and for the chance to Think about your scriptures, Lord. We know that you are a God of truth, and we pray that you would help us today to to know you better. Uh, in, as we encounter your word, Lord, and I pray that you would help us to be obedient to your scriptures. Just in the name of pray, amen. Well, in a, a recent NPR interview, tennis legend John McEnroe was having a discussion about uh, tennis with the NPR reporter Garcia Navarro, and I wanted to read a bit of the transcript of that conversation uh, for us today. Uh, Garcia Navarro is responding to John McEnroe's comments about male tennis at this point, and she's trying to pick a fight. And this is what she said uh, to him. She said, we're talking about male players, but there are, of course, wonderful female players. Let's talk about Serena Williams. You say that she is the best female player in the world in the book. Uh, McEnroe responds to that by saying, best female player ever, no question. Uh, Garcia Navarro comments, some wouldn't qualify it. Some would say she's the best player in the world. Why qualify it? McEnroe, in confusion, uh, responds by saying, oh, uh, she's not, you mean, the best player in the world, period. Uh, Garcia Navarro Yes, the best tennis player in the world. You know, why would you say female player, McEnroe? Well, because if she was in, if she played the men's circuit, she'd be like 700 in the world, Garcia Navarro. You think so? McEnroe, yeah, that doesn't mean I don't think Serena is an incredible player. I do, but the reality of what would happen would be, I think, something that perhaps it would be a little higher, perhaps it would be a little lower. And on a given day, Serena could beat some players. I believe because she's so incredibly strong mentally that she could overcome some situations where players would choke because she's been it, been in it so many times, so many situations at Wimbledon, the U.S. Open, etc. But if she had to just play the circuit, the men's circuit, that would be an entirely different uh, story. So uh, McEnroe, in this uh, conversation with his NPR reporter, had the audacity to suggest that male tennis players are better than female tennis players. And you may uh, uh, may find that the reaction to his comments along those lines were uh, fairly predictable. We, we do live in the sort of society where we are openly hostile to true statements. So can you imagine what happened at the end of that interview? 
Well, McEnroe, after he's saying just simple, non-controversial comments about the uh, not even trying to address the uh, difference in talent between one gender and another at particular sports. He's just making comments in general. Uh, but then uh, you can imagine that what happened after that was there was a firestorm of media attention where people were demanding that he uh, put forward a, an apology for saying such uh, insensitive and uh, rude comments and dare, daring to suggest that uh, Serena Williams isn't perhaps the um, – best player in the world ever, period, uh, and that perhaps if she played in the men's league, it would be a different story there as well. Now, this is very funny uh, when you think about it because uh, Serena Williams, actually, she's a great female tennis player. Uh, I dared to use that adjective as well. Uh, she is, but she actually addressed this subject of how she would do against male tennis players in 2013 in a David Letterman interview. Uh, so she's just, she's discussing at the time playing tennis uh, player Andrew Murray, who at that time was about the f- number four in the world. Uh, and they were discussing having a match between her and the number four uh, t- male tennis player. And she says this to Letterman. She said, actually, it's funny because Andy Murray, he's been joking about myself and him playing a match. I'm like, Andy, seriously, are you kidding me? For me, men's tennis and women's tennis are completely almost two separate sports. If I were to play Andy Murray, I would lose 6-0, 6-0 in five to six minutes, maybe 10 minutes. No, it's true. It's a completely different sport. The men are a lot faster. They serve harder. They hit harder. It's just a different game. I love to play women's tennis. I only play girls because I don't want to be embarrassment. I don't want to be an embarrassment. So you think about that. You you have a situation where uh, a, a, the best probably female tennis player ever is being asked honest uh, questions about her talent level as it relates to uh, tennis as compared to men's tennis. And she gives an honest answer, which I think anyone who knows anything about uh, uh, competitive professional athletics in general would obviously realize she's allowed to answer this question in a way that corresponds with reality and the truth. And then when McEnroe is asked the same sort of question, uh, sort of unwillingly, he's not even bringing it up, but uh, someone wants to pick a fight with him and ask him what he thinks about how she would do in a male tennis league. Uh, he's expected to not agree with reality. He's expected to somehow lie or fudge the truth or alter the truth in some sort of way just because uh, the truth seems to be uncomfortable to people in general. Now, the reason why I bring up this example is because this is just one kind of silly, absurd example among many that we almost have on a daily basis. If you if you listen to the news and you watch the news to any degree or you uh, have any kind of interaction with people at any level, it really is uh, true that you're going to find example after example like the ones that I just mentioned where people in our society really don't care about truth at all and we're much more concerned about uh, the way in which certain facts make people feel. So, I mean, it really is very difficult to imagine living in a period of time that despises the truth uh, to a greater degree than which we currently do. Uh, examples of the ones I've just mentioned could be multiplied. I could give you example after example in recent news, almost on a daily basis of situations where you have people who could care less about whether something is true or right or factual, uh, but are more concerned with uh, other matters or whether or not it is nice to say or fair to say or uh, uh, makes people uh, feel uncomfortable to say. Uh, I, I can just give you another example really quick. Uh, we... Uh, if 
we do live in the kind of time where if our president, for instance, and I'm not a big fan of our current president, but if, if the president that we have makes irrefutable statements about violence and hatred on two sides of a conflict, what are we going to do? We're going to spend the entire week or a couple weeks upset with him about acknowledging an unpopular truth. And even if I mention this, uh, just comments that he made recently about the Charlottesville situation, if I mention this, I'm going to be expected uh, to make all sorts of qualifications. I'm, I'm going to be expected to make all sorts of uh, statements of condemnation against certain groups. I'm going to make. I'm going to be expected to make all sorts of uh, of comments about particular people that I I dislike and I'm against or I'm opposed to. Uh, it, instead of just dealing with the incontrovertible reality that 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 uh, we have a lot of race problems in our society and that. Uh, there's violence and hatred on both sides, and, and, and this, there's no simple fix to that kind of problem. So uh, what I'm trying to say is we, simple, we, we do live in a time where, for many people, facts are simply irrelevant. You can't make simple truth claims. You can't make simple statements about truth that, uh, and have people interact with the truthfulness of what you're saying. What you're going to find is that people are far more uh, Concerned about other things. We live in a society that believes that truth is a personal and subjective matter. A person can be whoever they want to be, regardless of biology, right? Biology doesn't matter. If a person wants to feel a certain way, then they can define themselves purely and totally on the basis of their feelings. Uh, it, it simply doesn't matter whether or not something is true, whether it's factual, whether it corresponds to reality. What matters is whether or not the statements that we make correspond to the current list, and this list is ever-changing, uh, but what I'm trying to say is that what matters most to people is not whether something is true or whether it's right or whether it's uh, corresponds with reality. What matters is whether or not this, whatever we say, corresponds with the current list of uh, of approved statements we're allowed to say uh, that we have determined to tolerate the uh, to- tolerate at the moment. And this, as I've said, this list is rapidly changing. Uh, and, and and our primary responsibility is uh, seems to be to, to to keep track of not what is right or what is true or what is uh, uh, corresponding to reality, but uh, we're expected to keep track of what people want to hear uh, more so than not. Uh, now, in contrast to the kind of society that we do live in, Jesus uh, sees the truth not as a source of bondage or as something to be embarrassed of or something that needs to be uh, qualified endlessly to death. Uh, Jesus sees the truth as something which is fundamentally liberating. As a result of this, true disciples of Jesus are those who love the truth. Uh, John 8.31 begins with a statement, which in some ways is meant to give us a bit of an outline for the whole rest of the section that we're going to be dealing with in general, uh, that's going to be elaborated on as, uh, with an example of Jesus' interaction with the Jews. But John 8.31 begins with these words. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So in contrast to the Jews that Jesus is interacting with, there's, there's plenty of people throughout the Gospel of John who are going to follow uh, Jesus and believe in him in some superficial way for a, a period of time. But in contrast to this, uh, to the Jews that Jesus is interacting with, the true believer 
is the one who abides in God's word. So what does it mean to abide in God's word? To abide in God's word is to remain in the scriptures, to dwell in the scriptures, or to live in the scriptures. In short, the true believer is the one who loves God's revelation to them because it is the only sure source of truth that we have. So one of the primary ways that you can distinguish in this passage, uh, God wants us to know, one of the primary ways you can distinguish a true believer and a false believer uh, is from their love for the scriptures. So notice notice who Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking to the Jews who have believed in him. And what he wants the Jews who believed in him in some way to know is if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Now, if you think about the way the gospel of John works over and over and over again throughout the gospel of John, what you're going to find is that there is there are many people. And this is a major theme in this book. There are many people who are said to follow Jesus for a while and then they stop following him. There are many people who are said to believe in Jesus for a while, uh, but then their their belief is called into question. Their loyalty and commitment to Jesus is called into question at some fairly fundamental levels throughout the whole Gospel of John. It should be remarkable to us that Jesus spent three years uh, teaching and gathering great crowds to himself, only to end up at the end of his ministry with a handful of followers who mostly ran away. Uh, when he's being crucif- cruci- uh, crucified, uh, but then who ultimately come back to him. He, he appeared to 150 people uh, post-resurrection and then uh, 500 brothers. And so, I mean, if you were to take take those numbers and say, hey, maybe there's a little over 500 people that were following Jesus uh, by the time of his death, this is a number that ought to stand in stark contrast with the big crowds that you see following him throughout the rest of his ministry. Uh, so one of the things you realize about Jesus throughout his whole ministry is he has a he has a way of getting a crowd and losing a crowd pretty quickly. Uh, so throughout the life of Jesus, you'll see that over and over and over again, there's a lot of people who who are excited about him and want to follow him for a period of time and seem to believe uh, and hope that he could perhaps be the Messiah whom they've longed for and waited for. And yet uh, Jesus wants to wants this group of people to know repeatedly over and over again throughout his ministry that the true believer is going to be the one who abides in his word. So uh, as we said, one of the primary ways you can distinguish a true believer and a false believer is going to be uh, their to abide in God's word, or to put the matter another way, it's going to be their love for the scriptures. Now, when I first became a Christian, and this might be autobiographical for a bit, but when I first became a Christian, God, uh, for whatever reason, because of his grace, he worked in me a love uh, for the Bible. It was a a kind of an inexplicable love and passion for the scriptures that I had really no way to... um, to explain apart from the working of divine grace. I mean, for many years of my life before I became a Christian, I knew that this was God's revelation to man. I knew the Bible was an important book. I, I knew it was a big book. I, I really wished that I, uh, I, could, I could really get myself to sit down and read it for any uh, period of time. I really wish I cared about the Bible a lot more than what I did. And what I... Uh, what I, I knew at a fundamental level that it was almost impossible for me to 
force myself to sit down and read the scriptures uh, on my own. I just, uh, if I were honest with myself, and I had enough self-awareness to know for many years that I just, I I knew that I should care about the Bible. I knew that I should want to read it more than I did. But I simply just had no motivation, and I simply just had no desire to read it at all. And one of the remarkable things about uh, coming to Christ was that all of a sudden, I had spent probably 15 years of my life uh, caring less about about this book, uh, had no desire to read it, uh, kind of felt secretly guilty that I didn't and wished that somehow that could change. But uh, when, it, when it really came down to it, the only, my only interaction with the Bible for over 15 years probably uh, was uh, learning to win mem- uh, memory verse memorization contest at uh, Awana for the prizes, right? <laughs> so, uh, that was about the only motivation I possibly had to ever interact with the Word in general is, is just simply to try to uh, win certain contests that um, people at the churches I were uh, was attending were were putting forward and get whatever silly reward they were going to give me. But for many years, that was my stance towards the scripture. I, I realized I, I just couldn't bring myself to read it, care about it, uh, or desire to do anything with it. But suddenly, when I became a Christian, all of a sudden, I wanted to read it. I wanted to know who Jesus was. I, I realized fundamentally that I lived my life for myself for many years, and I uh, pursued uh, predominantly just self-interest, uh, violated God's standards at every single point that I could imagine, didn't even feel bad about it. But all of a sudden, at some point, uh, there, there was uh, worked within me, uh, by divine grace, a desire to uh, know, the, know the God of the Bible, know his expectations for me, to learn more about the person of Jesus. And, and the first thing I did when I became a Christian was just read the Gospels over and over and over again because I wanted to learn more about Jesus. Who is he? What, uh, what did he do? What did he teach? What did he expect of me? And in doing so, uh, one of the things that was uh, a bit um, of a, a source of conflict with me f- for me during the time was I, I, I started to read and study the Bible in a time that was so heavily influenced by postmodernism that uh, you really just, it, it was rare for me to encounter people, even at the church, I, I tried to attend. I, you know, immediately I said, "Well, if I'm going to be a Christian, I need to actually obey what God says, and so I need to start reading the Bible. I need to go to church somewhere." But uh, the church, I couldn't find a good church. The church I was attending uh, was full of people who seemed to believe that you could actually understand the scriptures, and so everything just seemed to be a, a matter of debate or uh, unclear. The Bible's unclear about this. The Bible's unclear about that. And 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 in, I looked around and I realized that none of my friends really thought we could read God's word and understand it and actually know what God's saying. We just thought, oh, it's just, a, you know, it's a complicated book. It's a difficult book. Uh, who's to say whether or not that we could know what it says? I mean, isn't it prideful and isn't it arrogant to say that you know what the scriptures uh, are saying? Isn't it prideful and isn't it arrogant to think that you know what the Bible says? And maybe you read something over here, but this is a big book. And how are you going to say that you know what it's supposed to be saying. I mean, have you read the whole thing? Do you know what all is in there? Have you worked out all the details? And, and isn't it prideful and arrogant to think that you could you could understand God? Well, during this time of my life, I, I had all these people around me who were telling me, I can't, that it's a hopeless task to begin with. I might as well not even do it. I might as well not even try to read it at all because 
just uh, hopelessly obscure, and who knows what it's saying, and and everything else. But for for whatever reason, I, I just I just thought, well, surely God doesn't have a speech impediment, does He? I mean, surely if God took the trouble to like put this book forward for us to read, and I mean, uh, preserved it over the history of the church, and uh, took all the time to write it down, just as Lucas saying at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, as many as uh, in, in as much as many of us as have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things done uh, among you, thought it necessary, O Theophilus, to uh, write an orderly account so you may know the with certainty the things with which you were taught. And so I'm reading Luke. And it seems like Luke is taking all this time to write his stuff down so that we can have confidence in what we're reading. And then I'm looking around at everyone around me, and it seems like I'm the only one who, who seems to think that we could uh, read uh, read this book and understand this book. Uh, but one of the things that was very remarkable about learning to read the Bible and just diligently setting yourself up to read it over and over and over again, one of the things you realize is that the Bible is not meant to be overly complicated. It's not meant to be confusing. It's not meant to... Uh, God's not writing a book and then expecting you to understand it and then uh, making it entirely impossible to understand it. Uh, it's it's written in a pretty plain fashion. Uh, if you interact with it uh, to any degree, put some diligent work in it, it's, it, it, it gets less and less vague the more you read it. And, and so the more you read the Bible over and over again, the more you find that it's not really meant to be incomprehensible. It's meant to tell you what is true. It's meant to be a reliable guide to what is true. And so the more that you read it, the more that you interact with it, the more that you will begin to love the truth. Uh, when you see that there is this book that God has given us which defines truth for us, over against all the lies that you're tempted to believe that are all around you, uh, one of the things that you'll see is that this is a, a valuable thing, and this is a thing that you ought to love and you want to spend more time in. And the more that you do it, the more that you will begin to hate error. Uh, so it's almost impossible to love the truth without hating error. I mean, if you see that this is something that is... If you see that the Bible is meant to be a book that you're meant to understand and learn and know God better... Uh, the more that you begin to love this book, the more that you're going to naturally begin to hate uh, all the lies which uh, that are uh, speaking in opposition to what you what has become precious to you, which what has become uh, dear to you, what has become life changing for you. The more that you read the Bible, the more that you love the Bible, the more that you abide in God's word, the more that you begin to love the truth and you begin to hate error. And then you become really, really weird. That's the, the problem. <laughs> with doing what I'm suggesting. The more that you read the scriptures and know what the scriptures say, the more that you become confident in knowing God's expectations for you, uh, knowing how to live, uh, knowing what, right from wrong, uh, having divine wisdom given to you. And one of the things that you'll realize is that uh, the more that you abide in the truth, uh, the more difficult it is to interact with the world around you, particularly when you're trying to interact with a world that hates the truth, despises the truth, uh, doesn't allow you to say simple, true statements, which everyone knows because uh, because somehow these statements are not popular and they're not on the list of approved uh, things. If you want to become a really weird and strange person, I would suggest that you read the Bible repeatedly. Uh, and then you will understand what Solomon says when he says that 
Knowledge is sorrow. Uh, but uh, but uh, what is a characteristic of a true, true disciple? A characteristic of a true, true disciple, in contrast with the false disciples that Jesus is interacting with uh, throughout this, the scope of his ministry, is you can identify a true disciple and a false disciple by the ones who abide in God's word. Now, if you fundamentally love the truth... Here's the point. If, you, if, the, if, if God's worked in you and desired to, uh, and a love for the truth, then you're going to want to know the truth. Uh, so uh, a corollary of abiding in God's word is that you will know the truth. Uh, John 8, 31, Jesus says, true disciples, uh, true disciples know the truth. Jesus says, uh, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And what's the result of that going to be? If you abide in God's word, that shows whether you're a true disciple or a false disciple, but what's the result going to be? The result is going to be, in part, that you will know the truth. So notice how abiding in Jesus' word, notice how that's singular, abiding in Jesus' word. We'll comment on that in a little bit. But notice how abiding in Jesus' word is connected to knowing the truth. So if you abide in Jesus' word, you will know the truth. Uh, if you want to know what God has to say to you, I want to suggest that you need to look no further than the Scriptures. Now, uh, I, I I did spend some time post-seminary working at a particular counseling organization. If you don't know, uh, I, I uh, during my, my, my uh, seminary training, I, I had a concentration in biblical counseling because I came to... Uh, love the truth, and I came to see that the Bible has the answers to all the problems that I have faced my whole life. And I don't, I, I've been desperately searching for answers in all the wrong places. And then I realized that those answers didn't work, and they're all conflicting with each other, and they don't, met, uh, they don't, uh, uh, they're, they're uh, only bringing me heartache, and they're not fixing whatever problems that I, I had at the time. Uh, but the Bible does have the answer to all of the problems, and I want to figure out how to know the Bible better so that I can help people to uh, to deal with the problems of life in, in a more faithful way. But here's the point. I was involved in a counseling organization for a while, uh, and the, the stated objective of this counseling organization was to be kind of a uh, parachurch ministry where you'd come along and you would try to help uh, churches establish their own uh, uh, shepherding ministries, basically, where we're where they're going to try to equip their members uh, with the scriptures in, uh, in order to obey the Bible and, and, and to answer their problems. And, and the only reason why that sort of thing would ever need to happen is because for so many years the church has bought into the lie that we uh, somehow uh, are not able to answer common problems that people face. Uh, we're not able to speak to issues like eating disorders. We're not uh, able to speak to issues like mental disorders. Uh, we don't have anything to say about uh, these problems of thoughts and behaviors and actions. We, we, we really have to push all, all of our counseling out to the psychologist, um, the secular psychologist, because we really are just uh, not competent to speak into these Issues, which I mean, should come as a bit of a shock because the Bible, if, if anything, is meant to uh, tell us what to think and what to do and how to act. 
And so, uh, and if you and if you really think about what the church is meant to be, the church is meant to be a a uh, community of individuals who are uh, actively ministering to each other uh, with the scriptures. And and one of the things that shepherds are meant to do is to uh, take the scriptures and 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 try to help people to. Think the way God wants them to think and act the way God wants them to act. Uh, that's what shepherding is. That's what that's what the church is called to do in a wide variety of ways. But as I said, I mean, for so many years we we've just surrendered this basic uh, task of counseling to unbelievers, and and we uh, we really have just uh, lost all confidence in the scripture. But I, I'm a part of several organizations that really um, have attempted to. Uh, wake the church up to our role in uh, helping to minister to people with the scriptures. But uh, that being the case, I, I was counseling at this uh, with this parachurch organization that's meant to work alongside the leaders at the church and help them to uh, start a f- uh, faithfully and effectively uh, discipling, counseling their members. And and one of the churches that we were at was a charismatic church. It was a mega church. It was a very large uh, charismatic uh, kind of church. That we were uh, coming alongside, and you know, you just had thousands and thousands of people in the Birmingham area going to this church, and all of their members just had a lot of problems and needed a lot of help, and we were trying to uh, counsel them as far as that goes. Uh, but but one of the things that was uh, shocking to me uh, was that 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 I encountered person after person after per- church member after church member after church member who wanted to hear from God. They wanted to know what God had to say to them. Uh, they, they, they desperately wanted to know how to be faithful to God and to hear from Him well, but they wanted absolutely nothing to do with the Bible. Absolutely, I could not get them to read the Bible. Uh, I, I, would, I would meet with them time after time after time, and I would try to, I, you know... I'm a Bible person. I believe the Bible is God's word. I believe we should read it. I believe if you want to hear from God, you just read his book. I'm pretty simple-minded <laughs> as far as that goes. What I'm doing is called biblical counseling. I, I was involved in a biblical counseling ministry because we counseled with the Bible, and that's what we did. And so people would come, and I would say, here's my step one. I want you to read the Bible. What do you think would happen like next week? Do you think they would do when they came back in? Do you think they read it? I couldn't even get them to... Like, I started out thinking, okay, 15 minutes is not a long time each day to read the Bible. I'm going to see if I can get you to read, like, a, a small book a day, like First John, and see if you can read that and spend 15 minutes. You're coming. You have all these... You have a lot of problems that we're going to talk about. I believe the Bible has the answers to it. But I just want you to just get in a good habit of reading on a daily basis. And so I thought, well... 15 minutes, that's not a lot. I can get them to read 15 minutes. They came back, you think next week they read 15 minutes a day, even once? Not even once. I could, not even once, not even one day. So I thought, well, um, did you read it? No, I you know, left my Bible here or there. All right, I can fix that. So, you know, here's a Bible. Uh, and I'm going to highlight what I want you to read and give it to you. And I'm going to Put a bookmark in there. We'll see if that'll work. Next week, you think they came back? You think they read it even once? Even once. Uh, so, you know, after about three three or four weeks of this, I, I just thought, if look, here's my counsel to you. You come back and we'll talk when you read <laughs> this book. Uh, 
and until that, then I don't have anything to say to you because you're not going to want to do anything I say anyways. So, um, but the point is, in situation after situation after, I could have a conversation with them all day long about all the things they're hearing God tell them. Uh, but we can't have a conversation about the Bible. They don't care about what the Bible says. They don't want to do what the Bible says. They don't want to read what they don't want to read the Bible. All they want is some some kind of uh, quick and easy way to relate to God apart from. Uh, the scriptures. I, I, I had a lady who came in, and who you know, I couldn't, I couldn't get the woman to read the Bible, but um, she listened to Joyce Meyer's sermon every day. So over and over, she would listen to her Joyce Meyer thing every single day. And I, I was trying not to be rude, and I was trying not to be mean, and I was thinking, I don't, I think Joyce Meyer is a prosperity gospel heretic. But I'm not going to say that because I'm not wanting to run her off. But I really want her to read the Bible, and all she wanted to talk about was Joyce Meyer. And I, just, I want her to read the Bible, and I can't get her to read the Bible. And at some point, she asked me, what do you think about Joyce Meyer? And I'm like, well, I, I can see I'm not going to avoid this conversation. Um, I really don't think Joyce Meyer is a reliable guide to truth. I really just want you to read the Bible, but she never came back. I offended her. Uh, but here's the point. True disciples know the truth. Uh, notice in this passage how... Uh, Abiding in Jesus' word is connected with knowing the truth. Uh, The Jews, in this example, they think they're okay, but here's the point. They think they're okay based on their genealogy. They think that they're going to be okay on the basis of their relationship to Abraham. They think that they're okay because they're a member of God's chosen people. Uh, But then they reveal themselves, not uh, predominantly, not to be true disciples because they're not wanting to abide in Jesus' word. They don't like Jesus' word. Uh, The more that Jesus speaks, the more that they're going the opposite way. The Jews, they think they're okay, but here's the point. They don't want Jesus' word. Now, Uh, The true disciple is going to be the one who abides in God's word and therefore knows the truth. Uh, We um, there there is no biblical Christianity that is going to be found uh, in uh, in attempts to try to short circuit this process. There's no shortcut. Uh, Yes, it's a big book, uh, but it is a source of truth that God has given us in order for us not to be in the dark about what he expects to us and not to be in the dark about uh, what his plans are for us. I mean, it is a remarkable amount of uh, work, if you want to use that term in relationship to God, uh, which is probably not wise in certain ways, but it is a lot of effort that was put into putting together these scriptures in order that we may know what God has to say. So the true disciple is going to be the one who abides in this word And therefore, as a result of abiding in this word that God has uh, given to people, the true disciple is going to be the one who also knows the truth. And third is going to be set free by the truth. Uh, So as you think through the way the passage works, true disciples not only are are the ones who know the truth uh, or abide in the truth, but then... They also know the truth and are set free by the truth. Uh, John eight thirty one. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Uh, John eight thirty three. We'll skip a verse and, and think about the corollary to this. Uh, the true disciple is the one who's going to be set free by the truth. Truth, But then you have examples of false disciples here who uh, can't conceive of their need to possibly be set free. So John 8, 33, 36, they answered him, We are of the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. 
How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, uh, as is common in the Gospel of John, the uh, frequently when Jesus makes statements, uh, the, his hearers seem to interpret these statements on a purely horizontal level. So uh, when, uh, when the Jews are listening to Jesus and he's saying, if you abide my word, you are my true disciples, you will know the truth, the truth will set you free. Uh, their natural impulse is to uh, is to wonder what he's talking about because uh, on a purely human level, technically, technically, actually slaves at the moment uh, to anyone. Uh, now it, it is kind of funny that they respond to Jesus in this way, uh, considering the fact that they are currently being ruled by the Romans. Uh, and are not allowed to, uh, as we've learned in past passages, uh, they're not even allowed to uh, obey God's law, uh, execute capital punishment. They are, they are being ruled by a foreign power at this point, and so technically they are under the authority of a of a, of a government which is hostile to God's purposes uh, for the, the Jews at this point in salvation history. But uh, you know, if you want to give them their point, technically speaking, they're not slaves like the Israelites were slaves in the land of Egypt before the Exodus. And so they're technically not um, necessarily to the same degree being forced uh, to do things that uh, they don't want to do. Uh, Although at times, I mean, uh, the Romans could be uh, exerting significant pressure and influence over them. Uh, That's why on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus makes comments about if if, uh, someone wants to uh, ask you to go with them a mile go with them two miles, that's related to the practice of the Roman soldiers uh, being able to enlist the Jews to carry their equipment with, uh, for them for a mile. And so functionally, I mean, at, at various points, they could be uh, have their rights taken away from them and be uh, enslaved, enslaved to some degree. Uh, but then their point uh, basically stands. Technically, they're not slaves, although they're not a completely free people. They are being ruled by the Romans. Uh, but uh, the Jews' basic response to Jesus at this point is to think purely on a horizontal level. Hey, technically we're not slaves to anyone. Uh, we've never been slaves to anyone, at least during our lifetime. Uh, so what is it that you're saying to us that you will become uh, free? Well, Jesus wants them to know that in verse uh, 34, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you that everyone who practices a sin is a slave to sin, the the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Now, uh, as a result of Adam's original transgression in the garden, we do inherit from Adam a nature or an orientation towards uh, sin, which is profound in its uh, effects. And so we do uh, inherit original corruption from Adam. As a result of what Adam has done, all of us do not enter the world morally neutral. We enter the world uh, with a pervasive uh, depravity which uh, results in every single human faculty, mind, will, emotions uh, that you can think of is affected by sin. We come into the world with with wills that are hardwired to uh, reject the truth and unrighteousness to to fundamentally, instead of worshiping the God who made us, to worship and serve the creator. Uh, the creature rather than the creator. We come into the world um, legally guilty, uh, 
we come into the world with an orient, a guilty uh, practice. Uh, we come into the world uh, being people who have been affected by sin to such a degree that righteousness simply does not come natural and is not really possible apart from uh, divine grace. And so Jesus' point to this group of people is to say, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You say that you're free. You say that you're a free people. Uh, I'll give you that, uh, but uh, you are currently enslaved to sin, and you don't even realize it. Uh, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, what Jesus came into the world to do is to to liberate captives. Uh, Jesus uh, came into the world to set uh, captives of sin free with the truth, which is going to be found in his words. So Jesus has come into the world uh, to to a people who are enslaved and dominated by the power of sin, uh, preaching to them a message of freedom and liberation from the the sin that so often plagues us. Uh, Now, if you want to know, uh, if you want to just uh, demonstrate the pervasive presence of sin in the world, uh, you know, there's very few uh, doctrines which are so easily empirically verified than the doctrine of sin. If you just listen to the news uh, and you, for any time you're going to realize that all you're going to be hearing is a list of sin after sin after sin that's being reported on. Uh, we we uh, understand history. If you spend any time trying to learn about history, one of the things that you're going to realize is that how do we understand history? <laughs> How do we categorize history? Will we categorize history on the basis of predominantly wars and conflicts and fights and struggles? Uh, So why is it that we live in the kind of world where our study of history is basically a study of uh, one country uh, killing and destroying another country? I mean, if you think about what we're learning about in history, is we're learning about the doctrine of sin as it is expressing itself over the course of, 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 of time. And now Jesus has come to us, and he has uh, come to us to set us free from the power of sin. Before I became a Christian, I had no ability to fight sin. I had no ability to even desire to fight sin. I knew that there was something wrong with me. I knew that I, I could look at God's word. I could look at his standards. I could look at the Bible and say, I don't, I know what God says. I simply just don't care to obey it. I wish I cared. Uh, I don't like particularly the guilt that I feel when I violate God's standards, but I wish that I, there was something in me that could somehow uh, change to such a way that I, I really would care about this stuff, but sadly I don't, and I'd rather just do things my own way. Well, I'm my my experience pre-salvation is not in any way unique. That's the experience of everyone uh, pre-salvation. Uh, it, if we look at our life soberly and honestly, uh, one of the things that we'll find is sin is easy. Obedience is hard. If you want to know the easiest thing in the world, the easiest thing in the world is just to set aside God's word, set aside his standard, and do whatever you want to do. Apart from God's grace, that's what we all do. In the only times in which we often even care about uh, what God said really has nothing to do with honoring the Lord and pleasing the Lord. Uh, It really has everything to do with uh, self-interest. Why do you think our society is so concerned about abortion? I've said this before. Why is our society... Why is our society concerned about uh, homosexual marriage? I mean, you have half the half the half our country which cares about these things; the other half that doesn't. Uh, the other the half that doesn't is winning, okay? Uh, but then the half that does care about it, why do they care? Why do they care about these things? Why, why do we care about them at all? 
The only reason we care about these things is not because we love God and we want to honor him. Uh, it's because we, we, we are approaching God as if he is some sort of tribal deity that if we violate his standards, he's going to uh, he's gonna, uh, take away our material prosperity. And that's about the extent of it. That's why the vast majority of professing Christians care about, adult, or care about abortion and care about homosexual marriage. It, it really has nothing to do with I love God, I want to honor him, uh, and I want to serve him. It has everything to do with if we don't fix these problems, uh, God's going to take away our money. And that's about the extent of it. But here's the point. True disciples are set free by the truth. Uh, how do you fight the Christian life? How do you how do you live the Christian life? Well, there's no shortcut to living the Christian life other than knowing God's word. We we live in a world that's dominated by lies. We live in a world which uh, is trying to indoctrinate us actively in lies. Uh, and the only way that you can actually fight the Christian life is to know what is true. So when you think about... Uh, Fighting the Christian life at any level, the, the, the only hope that you have is the truth. You have to know the truth because it's going to be the truth that is going to set you free. You can think about any sin that we're tempted to fight. Uh, the only hope we have in fighting it is the truth. Think about worry. How does worry work? There's a lot of us who spend a lot of time worrying. A lot of, time, uh, a lot of us spend a lot of time anxious. Uh, how, do you quit, how do you quit worrying? Just stop it. Just stop worrying. Just quit it. Don't do it. Well, certainly God says that uh, calls worry foolishness and futile. Uh, why do you worry about your life, what you eat, what you drink, clothes you put on, what you wear? Uh, does God not know you have need of these things? Therefore, don't worry about your life. So God tells us very clearly not to worry. Paul says don't be anxious for anything. So clearly the Bible says not to be anxious about anything. But how do you fight? how do you fight worry? You just stop it? Well, I mean, I think it would be a good start to say, hey, God says don't do this, so I better quit doing this. Uh, but don't, isn't the truth helpful in that battle? Doesn't it help? Doesn't the truth help you to quit worrying? Uh, doesn't it matter? Like the more you know about God, the, doesn't your knowledge of God meant to help you not to worry and uh, be stressed out and be frustrated? I mean, isn't it, like, isn't it encouraging to think about the fact that you serve the kind of God who made the world in six days? Who who can simply speak and things come into existence. You serve the kind of God who is powerful enough to say, let there be light, and there actually is. Um, Gavin was asking me today on the ride to church, where did all the trees come from? And I said, well, God made them, right? Now, sure, he made them instantaneously. He said, did he just, Gavin said, did God just have one seed and put it down and they all grow up? I said, no. He said, let there be trees, and there was trees. That's how I did it. Uh, now, the world was flooded, and you know a lot of them were destroyed. But then God literally made the trees with word. He made the trees. Uh, you think about that. We serve the kind of God who simply just calls into existence things that aren't. Yeah. Now, you serve the kind of God who, who it requires no work and effort on his part to make everything around you, make the vast universe see, uh, to, to make the sun, the moon, the stars, and all their orbits, uh, to, to create all of this. You serve the kind of God who can do all of this with no effort on his part whatsoever. Now, you think about whatever problem that you face right now, and I've just told you one truth about God, that he's a powerful creator. I've just said one thing. He's a powerful creator. Now, you think that God doesn't know about your financial problems? and You, you think that God can't fix those? 
you think that somehow that they're too difficult for him? That he can't just uh, fix them immediately, instantaneously? You think God that can't fix your relational problems? You, you think that, like the conflict in your marriage, God can't do something about it? He can't fix it instantly, right now, without any work or effort on his part? You think that uh, he can't uh, change your husband or wife's heart such that uh, instantaneously, without any work or effort on his part, you think he can't just... Uh, make them into the kind of person who would always love you sacrificially and selflessly at all points in time and, and always cater to your every desire and always cater to your every need and, and everything that you ever want. You, you think that God can't do the same thing with your ch- children. You think that God can't make your children instantaneously right now always want to obey with a good attitude, uh, always want to do everything uh, with in a respectful posture, uh, you think that, you know, if you want to be married, God can't give you a spouse right now, instantaneously, without any work or effort on his part? Do you think that that's too hard for him? Uh, do you think that somehow he can't arrange that to happen? Here's the point. I, I'm just trying to say that how do you fight worry with the truth? I don't know how you fight worry without the truth. But the same thing is true with everything. The more that you read the Bible, the more that you're going to know about God, the more that you're going to know about his character. Uh, the You have no hope of fighting sin any other way apart from the the scriptures and the truth that are revealed in the Bible. Uh, When Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He's meaning to give you a plan to help you overcome sin in your life in part. (laughs) The weapons of our warfare, brothers and sisters, are not carnal, but are mighty in God for casting down strongholds, refuting arguments, and every every, uh, vain thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Uh, How do we get set free from sin? Well, in a fundamental way, when God saves you, he's going going to, the kind of people that God saves are the kind of people that he changes their hearts so that they love the scripture. Uh, you can you can just look around at the world and you see that there's plenty of people who hate God's word. They want nothing to do with it. Uh, there's the, and, and and hate the God who wrote uh, has written it. Then you have a lot of people who give lip service to knowing God, like the Jews in this example. Uh, maybe even give lip service to knowing Jesus. I, I like Jesus. Uh, me and him are okay. We're good. We're tight. Uh, he's my homeboy and all that. Uh, but then they want nothing to do with the scriptures. How do you know a true disciple? You know a true disciple by the one who is going to be abiding in God's word, knowing the truth and being set free by the truth. And so God does this in an original way in salvation. He works in us a love for the truth uh, that uh, is not going to be able to be shelved indefinitely and suppressed. Uh, but then also you, you, you see even in this passage that the truth practically be an agent of transformation in our life in general. Now, um, how do we fight sin? We're going to fight sin with the truth. Uh, The truth is going to tell us who is God. What does he say about this, uh, about our actions and our thoughts and our feelings? Uh, What does God say about uh, how we fight uh, the impulses, the, the desires that come natural to us? Now, the implication of being set free from sin by the truth is that true disciples will practice the truth. So what we've seen is you, you've seen three different features of this opening verse in John eight thirty one. The true disciple is going to be the one who abides in God's word, who knows the truth and truth will set free. But then there's also a fourth implication, and that is going to be made explicit in this last verse. So the true disciple is going to be the one who practices 
the truth in contrast to the false disciple or the false believer who is going to be defined by the actions of a different father. So John eight thirty eight. I speak of what my what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. So here, here Jesus is talking to a group of Jews who seem to think that they have no need of Jesus. They have no need of his word. They have no need of the truth that he has to offer. They have no need of the freedom that he is promising of deliverance from sin in their life. Uh, so they seem to think that they're okay because uh, Abraham is uh, their distant relative. And Jesus wants them to know that uh, not only are they... Uh, not Abraham's true sons, uh, but then more broadly than that, uh, they are actually doing the work of a different father than the one they realize. And so Jesus uh, is the one who is, on, he is the true Israelite who is honoring uh, their shared true father, which is God, and the Jews are the ones who are doing the works of the devil. Now, uh, throughout John's writing, whether you're talking about the Gospel of John, whether you're talking about uh, the epistles of John, even Revelation, even the book of Revelation in general, one of the things to realize is that a certain characteristic feature in John's writing is that over and over and over again, he presents a series of contrasts uh, throughout all of his writings. And you have a lot of the same themes that pop up over and over and over again. Uh, everything with John is black and white. Uh, you're either going to be a son of God or you're going to be a son of the devil. You're either going to be born of God you're going to be born of the evil one. You're either walking in the light or you're walking in darkness. You either do the works of God or you do the works of your father, the devil. Uh, you, you, you're either, your real father is either going to be uh, God or it's going to be somehow you're with uh, a different uh, father. So there's, there's a series of contrasts that are present throughout the whole of John's writing. First uh, John 3 is a good place to go that just makes uh, the kind of contrast that John's making here and Jesus is making here very explicit. First John uh, 3, one of the things that we find is that John is making a similar point. First uh, John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is, and everyone who thus hopes and purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sin also makes a practice of lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared... So why is Jesus having the kind of conversation he's having with the Jews right now? Uh, the reason the Son of God appears was to destroy the works of the devil. How is he doing it in light of the passage we're reading? He's going to give them his word, which is the truth, which is going to set, the, set them free. Uh, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God. Not the Jews, right? Not, not just the ones who think that they're Abraham's descendants. Uh, but, uh, but by this, it is evident 
Who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not uh, love his brother. And so here you have John writing a letter to a church, trying to explain these basic contrasts to them. And these are things that Jesus is saying to the Jews during his earthly ministries. I speak what I've seen from my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. So you think that you're okay because you are related to Abraham. But actually, uh, you, my word has no place in you. You, uh, you are doing the works of your father, the devil. And we know that ultimately the Jews' works are going to culminate, the, the works of the, their father, the devil, are ultimately going to culminate in putting um, Jesus to death on a cross. Now, this is a message the Bible repeatedly tells us over and over and over again. That the true disciple is going to be the one who practices the truth. Uh, not the one who's going to be enslaved to sin, uh, making a practice of lawlessness. In fact, we're given many sober warnings throughout the scriptures uh, that 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 there is a great danger and capacity for self-deception in the Christian life. I mean, generally speaking, I think uh, we've, um, maybe perhaps due to uh, the uh, unfortunate evangelization efforts of many, I think we, we come to think that somehow... Our entrance into heaven is going to be predominantly based on answering some sort of final jeopardy question in the sky uh, where we stand before St. Peter and he's going to ask us the, the ultimate question, you know, why should I let you into uh, uh, heaven? And then whatever answer we give is going to determine our entrance or our exit. But then the sad reality is that when we do stand before the Lord, we're not going to be asking any questions. Matthew 7 tells us, uh, that there will be many people in the last day who think they're all right and think that think that they're following Jesus, like the kind of people in this passage who think that they're believing in him, think that they're okay with God, but are not. Matthew 7, 21 says that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So it's not enough just simply to you know, call Jesus the right title, right? Interest isn't, into heaven isn't going to be determined by just simply calling to Jesus, uh, Jesus the right title, title. Even the demons, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe in tremble. Uh, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Right? Isn't that kind of shocking to, way to word things? Not everyone who, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Isn't that saying exactly what Jesus is saying here? I speak of what I've seen with my Father. You do what you've heard from my Father, from your Father. Uh, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Uh, what is the critique? The, cri- the critique is that they're not, they haven't ab- they're not abiding in God's word. His truth has no place in them. They're actually doing the works of lawlessness. They're actually enslaved to sin. What did Jesus come to do? He came to set us free from the power of sin in our life. He came to fundamentally change us, to give us uh, his di- desires and priorities. Is this passage talking about salvation by works? Absolutely not. But on the last day, uh, our works will reveal who the true disciples are and who the false disciples are. Anyone who God saves by uh, unmerited and completely freely given grace is going to be transformed. That's what both of these passages are saying. Uh, Both of these passages are saying that the kind of person who God saves is the kind of person that he transforms. Uh, Jesus came to... To what? Get someone to answer a right theology question on, on, 
to be able to make a list of the right questions. Yes, Jesus is God. Yes, Jesus died on the cross for me. Yes, salvation is by grace. Did Jesus come just simply to get us to be able to answer those questions right? No, I mean, the Bible says repeatedly over and over again, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus came to set sinners free from the power of sin in their life such that they're no longer doing the works of their father, the devil, so that they're no longer defined by persistent, uh, uh, repeated rebellion against God and his purposes. Jesus came to give us uh, his word in order that we may abide in it and, and bear much fruit and be transformed. All those whom God saved are those who love the scriptures and who abide in the scriptures and who are set free from sin and transformed by the power of God at work in their life. So just like the language of First John, no one who has been born of God practices sin. No one who is uh, because God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning. The same thing is true in this warning passage in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven on that day. Many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So as we think about this passage, we have to think about it soberly. And Jesus has come. He's come to set sinners free. He's, he's, he's come to give us a righteous standing that we can never earn or deserve in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He came to die on the cross to do for us what we couldn't do. He's come to, to, to forgive us the penalty of our sin and to change our lives in a dramatic way. And, and there really is going to be no way that that is going to happen apart from the truth that God has revealed to us in the scriptures. And so as we think about uh, the, the truth that God has given us, pray that we would, we would grow in our love and appreciation for the God who's revealed himself to us in the Bible. And that as we go out from here today, that God would do a mighty work in us and to help us to love him more and more every day and to depend more faithfully on, his, on, on the truth that he's given us in his word. Let's pray.